You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 235 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? (laughs) (laughs) Why are you laughing? Oh, because now that everybody goes, now that everyone's drawn attention to how are you, Al, I'm I'm, (laughs) I'm thinking I need a t-shirt or something. Oh, I, yeah. I'm okay. I'm, I was just sitting here thinking, how am I? Because I knew you were going to ask me, so I like to be prepared yes. for these things. Yes. There's my handy tip for authors. Be prepared for the questions you know are coming. Yes. Um, and I can I can say fair to middling because that's clearly my response uh, mm-hmm. pretty much all of the time. But I'm actually, do you know what I am? I'm I'm living about four, four months ahead at the moment because I am, it's a bit like working in magazines um, sometimes. You know how when we used to work in magazines, you would, you'd kind of done Christmas by about oh, the end of September yeah. and you would move oh, well, on and I've you were done. into, yeah. yeah, you're into Mother's Day by the time Christmas came yeah. around because you were working so far ahead. Well, it's kind of a little bit like that for me at the moment too because I'm, um, I'm working on, I'm trying to manage my calendar like yeah. three and four months out all the time because I've got author talks and things going into book week and I've got a couple more writers festivals coming up and I've got all of these different things that I'm doing and trying to work out what everyone in my family is going yes. to be doing three or four months down the track on these particular days, it just does my head in admin. I got I get so much admin oh. and I think you're not really prepared for that when you before you publish a book. You're not yeah. kind of ready for the admin that comes with it. <laughs> and There's just, so much admin. And I get stuff like I get people emailing me saying, you know, what are you doing in February 2019? You know, I have yeah. no idea. I don't know. <laughs> I can, know. Can you confirm your availability for this on, you know, yes. the 28th of March 2020? And it's like, no. <laughs> I, <can't. laughs> I really actually can't do that. Um, so yeah, I do find that really hard and I guess my immediate response when I, and I've had to really actually school myself out of this and this is, and it's a, it's a very me thing. My immediate response when somebody asks me to do something five months down the track and I can't get my head around what day of the week or what is just to say no, no, too hard. I just go too hard. And I have had to over, it's taken me a little while. It's taken me actually probably a year or two to get in the habit of saying yes and then figuring out how I'm going to make it work. Yes, Because my initial right. response, particularly when the boys were younger, mm. um, my initial response was always, oh, are you kidding me? Like what, <laughs> six months? No, I can't do that. I have no idea what I'm doing on the 28th of October. Um, so I would just go, look, no, you know, I'm busy or whatever. Yeah. But now I say yes and then I juggle. Which kind of makes sense. 
Well, it makes a lot more sense. It's a personality thing. Like I'm one of those people. I'm kind of introverted. I don't actually love this stuff that much. I do it. And when I go, I, you know, it's, I, I love it. But my initial response to everything is always like, oh, you kidding? Yeah. I have to wear high heels? No. I, oh, that is my first response. That is my first response. Oh, I have to wear high heels. That is so exactly right. But I'm getting used to the fact that people are booking things well in advance. A few days ago, I had to book all of my hair appointments to March 2019. What? Yeah, because otherwise I won't get in. It's but, insane. But how do you know if you're actually – because I know the way your life works. You're just as likely to have to, like, fly to Brisbane, you know, with I a week's know. notice. How are you going to know if you're ready to get your hair well, done that? You, you're, they're all scheduled in, Al. All my hair appointments till March 2019 are all That's scheduled hilarious. in. That's hilarious. Because I don't yes. – see, this, this is the thing. I don't even schedule. So if I go in and get my hair done, they say to me, shall we book you in for, you know, six weeks' time? No. I'll let you know when I'm ready. So this is the response that I have to everything. And I yeah. really have to now basically, I have had to just go, just you'll you'll be fine, figure it out. It was a bit like, you know, I went to Singapore Writers Festival last year. Yes. And when they got in touch with me about that, I was like, are you kidding? I haven't used my passport <laughs> in 10 years. I can't, how can I possibly, blah, 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 I did all that. And then mm. I thought, you know what? Why not? I can do this. And so I went. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's it's that. That's what I've been doing. I don't know how we got to this. How do we get to this? How are you, Al? Yeah, That's how, how I am, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> There's a little oh insight goodness. inside my head. It's not pretty sometimes, is it? Anyway, oh what about you, Val? How are you? Talk mm-hmm. to us about yeah, you. Well, I'm better than I when... was last week because oh, last good. week I was a little bit under the weather. I've just been to the news agent and I love going to the news agent. I have to say I've loved news agents news agencies ever since I was very young because that's where all the magazines were when I was growing up and that's where the overseas magazines were and I used to pour over all of them. I loved it so much I got a part-time job in a news agent and, um, you know, I was able to read every single magazine under the sun and what was interesting is I was able to witness the buying habits of different types of people and the sorts of magazines that they bought and the reasons why. But that's a bit of a long-winded answer to the fact that I've just been to the news agent, which I enjoy because um, this, so we're at the end of May, beginning of June now, but in March for all of the members of my freelance writing masterclass program, which is the program you can join after you've done one of the introductory courses in freelance writing or food writing or travel writing, we held Marvellous March. And Marvellous March was this thing where I could I would give um, personal feedback on a particular article that was already pitched or going to be pitched to an editor of a publication. And they're all coming out now. They're all coming out now in print. Yeah, so it's... um it's so great being able to see the evolution of the article from where it was when we first started chatting about it to seeing it, you know, laid out on the page and that's why I went to the newsagent to buy to buy up all of the magazines that that are available at the moment that have um uh that are featuring members of the freelance writing masterclass program. So I love a good news agent Yay. and a good and a good news story. Like that's a good news story. Yeah, that's a good news story. Yes. That is. Well, and also we want to give a shout out to 
the Westminster Initiative, which is an Ooh. interesting name, uh, because the Westminster Initiative left us a review on iTunes entitled it Love This Podcast. And they said, I was recommended this podcast by a colleague as I'm an aspiring writer. As a consultant, I travel weekly, and this podcast has been fantastic, particularly during long waits in international airports and four-day drives to Canberra and back. Listen to Val and Al. It's brilliant. Oh, how cool oh, is that? Brilliant. I'm always happy with a brilliant. That's yes. fantastic. No mention of fair to middling at all. Excellent. No. Thanks thank for that, you the so Westminster much. Initiative. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. You've made our day. Um, really appreciate it. And, of course, if anyone else has 30 seconds to leave us a review or rating on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it definitely helps us in the rankings. Now, shall we move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, Al? Let's. Well, we have quite an international theme to this week's news, and I think that's because both of us will soon be using our passports to mm. go to, well, we're both going separately to Canada. Yeah, seems. not together. <laughs> that would be weird. Mind you, we could podcast yeah. on the plane. Wouldn't we that could. be fun? I, I tried that once. It was very noisy. Mm. Um <clears throat> But, uh, yeah, so we will both be uh, traipsing around the world. So we thought we'd get into the spirit of things and have a bit of an international flavour to this week's podcast. So this first link is actually from the Daily Mail because they are uh, holding a competition where you can write your first novel. It's the Daily Mail first novel competition Mm -hmm. and you could write a bestseller and win £20,000, which is heaps. Now, Mm -hmm. I I must add that this is um, only available to people who live in the UK and Ireland and, I mean, the conditions, we'll put them in the show notes. Um, So I know that for those of you listening in other parts of the world you might be a bit disappointed but we do have listeners from all over the world including the UK and Ireland so we wanted to do highlight you, we're this very video. international these days very international and um the yeah the, it's it's the third year of um the competition and the winner of their 2006 competition Amy Lloyd um her book, The Innocent Wife, became a bestseller earlier this year and has now been published in 18 countries and mm-hmm. won another literary prize and the rights to her thriller have been sold to a major film studio. So if you are from that part of the world, make sure you check out the Daily Mail first novel competition and we'll put the link in the show notes, which of course you can find it so you want to be a writer.com.au. Now, moving on to America. When, and other parts of the world. Um, <laughs> so you may remember, Al, that mm-hmm. hashtag Cockygate occurred, oh. uh, you know, a few weeks ago. Hashtag eye roll, yes. <laughs> and um, if you haven't heard of hashtag Cockygate, it was basically where a particular author, romance author, called uh, Felina Hopkins, she trademarked the word cocky <laughs> um, and, and she was saying that you could not use the word cocky in any uh, romance books, <laughs> titles, in their titles. And the whole publishing industry, many people in the publishing industry went crazy. This was all over social media. This were, this really did go viral. People were getting very cranky. They were saying that she, you know, um, 
it was, you know, it was bad behaviour from, from her. And one group formed called the Cocky Collective and invited authors to sub- submit manuscripts for their anthology to be titled Cocktails, the Cockiest Anthology. <laughs> All proceeds <laughs> from the sale of this book would be donated to those affected by Felina's trademark. And then the Romance Writers of America got involved after Amazon started taking down any romance books that contain the word cocky. And then there was a legal professional, Kevin, who became involved as well. Put He wrote a post that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago in the podcast about his take on, you know, the whole legal side of it and whether Felina ha- had a leg to stand on. Anyway, Felina is not taking any of this lying down <laughs> mm. because she has issued legal proceedings against Kevin and also against Tara Crescent and Jennifer Watson. And she's claiming, among other things, a loss of income as a result of those mentioned creating a campaign against her on social media. Goodness me. It's just never ending. This is a book in itself. Just just keeps on giving, really, doesn't it? Yes. So... We we have not heard the end of Cocky Gate, so we thought we'd no, just give you an No, but it's update. interesting because the limited release anthology called Cocktails, the Cocky <laughs> Collective, um, is it was ramp like just rampaging up the Amazon charts and had reached you know ten within minutes of going on sale, um, and is it's on sale until August twenty six, according to the to their Facebook pages. But whether or not Amazon takes it down, I don't know. Have they? Yes. Well, I don't know, but it Mm. will be an interesting thing to watch as it all unfolds. Mm. But speaking of other things rampaging up the bestseller lists, of course one of the best bestseller lists to be on is the New York Times bestseller list. Mm. Uh, Very, very famous. And um, so the current book that's rampaging up the the New York Times bestseller list (laughs) Mm-hmm. Is <laughs> oh my goodness! Honestly, I think I'm actually an eight-year-old. You know how you have your writing age as a child, and I think you're eight. I, oh dear! I think I'm eight. <clears throat> yes, because the book is. This is true, and the New York. And I might add, the New York Times bestseller lists is a very respected, prestigious list to be on. Agreed, Al. Yes, agreed. So. The book, which is currently number eight, and it's shot up to number eight since it was released in April, and I have no doubt it's going to continue even further up than eight, is called Does It Fart? The Definitive Field Guide to Animal Flatulence. (laughs) Seriously, you are eight. You really are eight, aren't you? Because seriously... We're doing fart jokes now? It's not a fart joke. I'm reporting the news. It's written by Nick Caruso, who is a postdoctoral associate at Virginia Tech studying amphibian ecology, and also Danny Rabaiotti, a student in the United Kingdom, because they're both interested in whether animals fart. Right. I think that's, like, so cool. But, well, it is, but it's also 
eight. And it's interesting you say you, you, that you we talk about this now because, you know, as you know, I have a Facebook group called Your Kids Next Read. Yeah. And Your Kids Next Group, Next Read is a closed group um, which has got nearly 4,000 members and we all discuss, you know, like if you've got a 10-year-old who, who needs a new book or there's a whole bunch of librarians and authors and booksellers and parents and all sorts of people in there. And, um, you know, you basically like you put in your request and you'll end up with a thousand different titles to choose from within yeah. minutes. It's a fabulous place. Um, but Kylie Howarth shared a post in there uh, earlier this month and it was basically she was like anyone looking for the next trend in picture books, here it is. And it's an entire uh, shelf of mm-hmm. basically picture books about farts and you kind of yeah. just go, well, it's not new because farts have been big in children's publishing for a very long it's time, but now ever. they're creeping onto the New York Times bestselling list and yes. you have to ask yourself, does that mean we're all just like <laughs> haven't got beyond a reading age of eight or <laughs> is there something more sinister going on? Oh, I think, I, I, I don't know, but it just tickles me. Like nothing else, because it. Act- what was interesting about the background of this book is the whole thing started out as a joke on social media. So I think that somebody kind of tweeted something wanting wanting to know if snakes farted. So this person turned to Twitter where she asked, "Does anyone know?" Kind of thing, and this guy Nick Caruso saw the tweet, and in an effort to make a joke, he started a hashtag hashtag Does it fart? And so various people started tweeting about this hashtag and this guy, Nick, decided to create a spreadsheet (laughs) which contained various animal species and information about the farting of those animals and experts around the world, because it was a Google spreadsheet so it's collaborative, experts around the world began to chime in. And so... If only we could, like, (laughs) harness this mind power for something useful. Like, everyone's willing to jump on board for the fart book. Will they jump on board for other things as well? Like, come on, people, please. That's, yes, well, you you do have a point, but it gives Mm. me anyway a lot of amusement. Clearly. So you'll be buying your copy, obviously. Right. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Oh, no, there's There's more. There's a sequel. There's a sequel. There's not a sequel. There's going to be a second book. (laughs) So the authors, the same authors, have um, already collaborated on the next book. It's not out yet. I think it will come out, I would say, later this year. Um, And it's called (laughs) – are you ready? No. I I actually don't know that I'm ready for this, but all right. Come on. Okay, it's not about farts, but it's called – it's like the next stage. So it's called – True or poo? Oh no! Stop, Valerie. Move on. Like really? <laughs> the definitive field guide to filthy animal facts and falsehoods. Yeah, but you know this is normal bodily functions. Don't I know, you but like, are you going to read a whole book about it? Well, I don't think I'll really? read a book about that. I'll... <laughs> no. All right. Moving so right along. <laughs> we will move right along to well. As we are both getting on plane soon, right? Um, I did actually have the option of going through LaGuardia in New York, but chose some other um, airport instead. But now I'm regretting it because there's this thing at LaGuardia Airport where, in the middle of one of the airport terminals, is a kiosk where there are two writers. 
and they're busily working away on stories and they're part of the 2018 Art Port Residency Program. <laughs> How cool is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, their names are Gideon Jacobs and Lexi Smith and they're the writers in residence. And what happens is before you get on the plane, uh, you go and chat to them and their project is called Landing Pages. Get it? Get yeah. it. The, progr- the, the project's running till the 30th of June and um, – you, you go to chat to them and and you give them your flight number and destination and how long it will take, I guess, to reach your destination. And while you are in the air, they write a story kind of based on stuff that you've told them and it could be prose, it could be poetry, they might do illustration, I'm not really sure. And so that by the time the passenger touches down, there's a story waiting for them. That's kind of cute, huh? Yeah, really. No pressure. No, no pressure. Hopefully it's a long flight. Hopefully it's a long flight. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine sitting there, yeah, no, sorry, I couldn't think of anything. So, um, yep, well, I'll get back to you next week. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll also put all of the stories on the on the website and we'll put the link in the, um, in the show notes. But I thought that was a cool idea. But I have some news that is totally different from writing stories in airports and farts. I'm so pleased. Right, hit me. What's your news? It's a little bit more serious. It's that the Australian Writers' Centre is launching a new online course in something completely different from farts, professional business writing. Ah. You will will not see the word fart in there at all. (laughs) (laughs) So it's designed for anyone who writes longer form documents, so things like reports and proposals and tenders and memos and that sort of thing, and it will help people to communicate with greater clarity and consistency no matter what role you're in. So Mm -hmm. it's very, very important if you want to improve your writing in the workplace. It will make your the whole process of writing easier. It will take the guesswork out of it and basically it will give you the rules so that it makes writing at work way more enjoyable. So this is an online self-paced course and you can do it at your convenience over 12 months Or and the great thing is you can revisit the content and get a refresher whenever you want. There's little quizzes in there as well if you want to test your knowledge if you're that way inclined. And to celebrate the launch, we're offering 25% off the regular price until the 6th of June. So that's one week only. So if you want to check it out, go to writerscentercomau slash probusiness. That's writercentercomau slash probusiness. <clears throat> there you go. Mm. That's my news. Good moving news. To, I like it. Uh, yes. Moving on to other kind of news, I think that a lot of people now will know that the winner has been announced for Furious Fiction. And if you um, are not aware of who that is, it is Damien Perry, and he scored a cool $500 for his quirky story, Narrative Drive. So go to furiousfiction.com.au to read his story plus other excellent shortlisted entries. And while you're there, make sure you've joined the Furious Fiction Fan Club. The June competition is kicking off this Friday, the 1st of June, and it's going to be a cracker. So if Mm. you're part of the fan club, you'll be notified as soon as the creative criteria has been unveiled because there's just a little bit of creative criteria that you need to ensure that you follow. It's very, very simple this June and you just follow it and, and write your story, which needs to be 500 words or fewer. 
you'll get the clues at five o'clock on the Friday, first Friday of every month, and then you have 55 hours to submit it, which is midnight Sunday night, and you have a chance to win $500. So mm. go to furiousfiction.com.au. There you go. Great. Oh, we have another. Oh, my goodness, more competition. You're on fire, Val. Uh, like yes. I'm just going to sit here and nod. I'm smiling <laughs> and nodding. If anybody's wondering what I'm doing while she's talking, I'm smiling and nodding. Just picture me smiling and nodding. <laughs> All right. The other competition that is available, you have three. There are three copies of How to Win a Nobel Prize <laughs> by, <laughs> by Nobel Prize winner Barry Marshall. Oh, cute. So... Ten-year-old Mary has always wanted to win a Nobel Prize. I mean, don't we all? She loves running her own science experiments at home, but how can she become a real scientist and win the greatest prize of all? One day, Mary stumbles on a secret meeting of Nobel Prize winners. Swearing her to secrecy, Dr Barry Marshall agrees to be her guide as she travels around the world and through time to learn the secrets behind some of the most fascinating and important scientific discoveries. They talk space and time with Albert Einstein, radiation with Marie Curie, DNA with Crick, Watson and Wilkins and much more. How to Win a Nobel Prize is a funny, fascinating adventure story for ages 9 to 12 and includes experiments that young scientists can do themselves at school or at home. So if you want your chance to win, go to writercentercomau slash win. That's writercentercomau slash win. Now, Sounds good. You can, I like the you idea can, of that one. Okay, so you can do more than nod for this one, Al. All right, okay. Are you ready okay. for the word of the week? I'm smiling and nodding furiously, Val. <laughs> I'm so ready. <laughs> okay. Have you used this word? Tendentious. So that's T-E-N-D-E-N-T-I-O-U-S. Tendentious. Hmm. No, I don't believe I have used that word. Do you know ever. what it means? No. Well, it's probably not surprising that it's related to the word tendency. It means to show a definite tendency or bias. So the Macquarie Dictionary says that it's described or written, that, that something is described or written so as to influence in a desired direction or present a particular point of view. So it's like bias, right? But mm. it's often used in the context where the viewpoint is, where it's often used where the content is such that the viewpoint is disagreeable to most or controversial. So you might say she wrote a tendentious report on the proposed new highway. Mm. There you go, tendentious. Okay. So no, there you go. Mm. okay. Why? No, it just it just reminded me of contentious, and I just oh, was yes. wondering. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. But you know, mm. even though it's it is it makes so much sense when you explain it. But yeah. I've never used the word ever or even seen no. it. But it's no. a real word. It's a word. Those words oh. are always real words. They're always real words. Okay, who is our writer in residence this week, Al? Oh, this week I spoke to the wonderful Deborah Abella and she is one of Australia's most uh, successful children's authors. Um, yeah. And she, uh, one of the great uh, things that we talked about in this interview and one of the reasons that I particularly wanted to talk to her was that um, we've had a few requests recently in the uh, So You Want to Be a Writer 
Facebook group and about school talks and, you know, how to do them and how to make them good and all of that sort of stuff. And she, um, Deborah, does one of the best school presentations that I've ever seen. And I learned a lot from her before I began my um before I began my school talk career. Um, so I decided that I would go to the source and I would get some information for you guys. But also she has a, a new book out at the moment, um, The Most Marvellous Spelling Bee Mystery from Memory, um, which is a sequel to a book that she put out last year that was incredibly successful. So I just thought it was a good time for us to have a bit of a chat about writing for children and talking in schools. Deborah Abella is the award-winning, best-selling author of 25 books for children, including popular series such as Ghost Club and Max Remy, picture books such as Wolfie, An Unlikely Hero, and thoughtful books such as The Grimsden Novels and Teresa, A New Australian. In 2016, her book, The Stupendously Spectacular Spelling Bee, which is now available in the US, introduced us to India Wimple, and her latest book, out now in Australia, is the sequel, The Most Marvellous Spelling Bee Mystery. Welcome to the program, Deborah. Oh, hello, Alison. Thank you. All right, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning, through the mists, <laughs> okay. the mists of time. Um, so you were a writer for Cheese TV, and then your first novels were, your first novel was um, the first Max Remy book. What was the path from TV to novels? I I did a communications degree first and so I knew I wanted to write but wasn't sure how and then I stumbled into this job in television I worked for a production house called Southern Star and worked mostly on adult drama and then kind of shifted across to Channel 10 and was still doing adult drama but I was in this office and it was very serious adult dramas very serious and then I kept seeing this woman walk past my office with armloads of toys Easter eggs, um, you know, it just looked very, very exciting, whatever she did. So I kind of tracked her down and said, what do you do? And she said, well, I've actually just started this kids show um, and it's only a couple months old and I'm, I want to really, uh, you know, in, you know, I want to grow the show basically and I need an assistant producer. Would you like to do that? And I'd had no experience whatsoever in producing, but I thought, oh my gosh, that is it. I've been sort of stumbling towards where I want to go, but I knew adult drama wasn't quite right. But when she said right for kids, I just thought, that's it. That is the thing I want to do. So for about seven years, we wrote and produced and directed um, and, and organized wardrobe and flights. And you, know, you do everything when you're the producer um, of Cheese TV. And uh, I think I did stay. So it was about seven years and you have to the show went to air six days a week so you couldn't not come up with an idea so this was brilliant practice for I don't I know you have nothing in your head right now but you have to do it because this show can't you know not go to air we can't have you know black going to air so it was a great way of just sitting down and and thinking I have to come up with something by the end of the session. And so we did six scripts a week, six shows a week, um, and every week of the year. So you, we, uh, even Christmas, you know, January, you didn't, yeah. So you pre-recorded shows so you could actually get a holiday. Um, so it just meant your workload (laughs) doubled for a couple of weeks. So you could actually go on holiday. So that's sort of how I fell into the kids thing. But while I was writing for kids and realized that, oh, this, I love this. This is really, really exciting. That's when I wrote my first novel, kind of on the quiet, just secretly to see if I could to, if I could actually do it. And it, it mushed together all the things I loved about writing for kids' TV, 
fast and furious, um, funny, um, but also my love of cartoons because Cheese TV was a cartoon hosting show. So that that sort of all came together um, in a spy genre, which was based on my love of Get Smart. And, and, and I wrote it, pitched it to about six different publishers, most of whom said no, uh, but one of whom said, in fact, I love it. Can you write more of these? Wow. So you were writing six scripts a week and you also were on the sly whilst you were also <laughs> assistant producing and doing all of those things. You were on yes. the sly, you were writing Max Remy. So yeah, how did you fit that in? Like that's a lot of output. I know, but that's what writers do, don't they? We all do it. You just you you squish it in, and you just you. I wrote it. I woke up really really early and wrote for a few hours. Then I went off to work and organised you know, llamas or organised you know, trips do. to the yeah that's right trips to the snow or cameras for you know whatever. Um, and then I come home and before and like like straight as I after I got home I'd work for a couple more hours and then I'd sort of you know maybe see friends or fall. Like, to an exhausted heap. I was just, I just loved it. You know, I mean, you'll know this, Alison, when you uh, get an idea and it, it won't let you go, you can't let it go. It didn't kind of feel like extra work, like, oh, now I'm home for work. I've got to work again. It was, um, they were both fun jobs. Towards the end of Cheese TV, it just actually became quite exhausting. And, I, mm. and it was kind of fun to leave that sort of conveyor belt of writing for an idea where I could spend like a year or six months on one idea <laughs> rather than have six whole scripts in, you know, in kind of one week. Did you, so did you go straight from, so once Max Romy had been picked up, did you go straight from full on, here I am, six scripts a week, very, very busy TV job to writing full time? Is yep. that what you did? Wow. That's a yeah, massive interface. <laughs> it was funny and it completely freaked my partner out. Um, so I just knew you know when you get that first shot, like someone signed me up and, and you know, and um, the wonderful Lindsay Knight who was at Random House at the time signed me up and I thought, I can't blow this. This oh. doesn't happen very often or it, it, certainly, and in fact, it's never happened to me. No one's finally said, you know, yes, I love your book. So I knew I had to actually dedicate myself to writing and I gave myself two years and thought I will live on Vegemite sandwiches and, and you know, and but, but if I don't treat this seriously, I'm going to blow it. And that sort of scared me more than anything, that I'd be given this amazing opportunity, a, a, a publisher would have faith in me and I'd, I'd squeeze it in. I thought, no, 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 this has to be the main thing mm. and everything else has to now squeeze around it, at least for a little while. If in two years' time I'm still – you know, eating Vegemite <laughs> eat sandwiches, sandwiches. Uh, then I have to reassess. <laughs> okay. So you essentially followed the Easter eggs into a new career is what you say. Dude, <laughs> I followed the shiny foil. <laughs> I like it. There's, you know, there's worse things to follow. It's really. I think so too. To so looking back on that and with that sort of background, do you think that writing for TV set you up for writing for children in, in a lot of ways? Like, as you say, you have to come up with an idea or do you think yep. sometimes all of those ideas is actually just really hard to manage when you're only, when you're doing a book as opposed to like television? Well, it's very different writing. And in fact, that was one thing I enjoyed about writing novels. It was a, a different way of writing where you could put much more kind of thought and energy and time, literally time into it. But the, the few things that it really taught me was, yeah, just sit down and do it. 
Mm. Stop talking about it. Just sit down because this has to happen. You know, uh, crews are organised, you know, flights, cars, actors, you know, props, guests are organised. You need to present something to all these people (laughs) waiting for you, right? Um, And the other thing it taught me was because it um, it was television, kids would email every single day and say, that was rubbish don't do that again, or wow, that was funny, or how come you haven't done this for a while, or why don't you do this? And and so straight away you'd get feedback about how terrible you were doing or what they wanted more of. So this was the feedback because, of course, we don't get that while we're in the middle of a novel. I mean, your editors or your lovely partners or your kids will say how much they love it, but this was good, honest-to-goodness, straight-talking kind of feedback. Mm, feedback. And that was Great training for, okay, that doesn't work. My adult self thinks that's funny, but my, you know, obviously kids don't find that very funny. So, so how do you manage that though when you're writing a novel and you're not getting that feedback? Are you having to, you're, have you kind of got yourself, are you into that position in your head where you can go, you know what, I'd get an email about this. I'm not going to do this. <laughs> Look, I, I'd like to think I'm a little bit better at it, um, at, at kind of gauging, actually, that's, that's my adult self thinking. That's funny, um, but also I think as I've 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 continued writing too, I in fact I don't think too much about the audience. Um, I think more about the character and being true to the character and what would be the most exciting thing that this character could do next. Or did you, so it actually becomes. Um, yeah, less about the audience. And I, I remember hearing Marcus Zusak once being asked a question about you know his audience, and he said, "Oh no, I never." I don't think of the audience. That's the, the, the furthest kind of point from my head. Um, and I don't know if he'd say it now, but he says my main obligation is to my story and to my characters and being true to them. And I, so yeah, having written a couple of books now, I, I, that, I feel that to actually be more true. Mm. So what's your writing process then? You know, now that you, you know, you obviously work at, full-time as a writer, do you write every day? I try to write every day, yep, and um, when I'm in the middle of a project, of course, that's easier. When um, I've just handed something in, I do actually deliberately take a break where I don't do anything, so I'll just give myself, uh, you know, it's letting the, the fields lie fellow for a little while. Moving the corn. That's right. Um, and, uh, and that way, too, I find that ideas more naturally bubble up than me sort of trying to kind of, you know, shuffle them into a space. Because I find early days in a book, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to shuffle ideas together. Whereas if I really let it um, just kind of grow, it's it's more like the characters take over and the story takes over. I don't know if that's how you feel when you are in that part of your process of writing, but um, I know a novel is working or the story is working when the characters do in fact seem to start to take over. Yeah, I think it's. I, I think you feel like you've hit the sweet spot of of your the stories unfolding as it's meant to unfold, as yes. opposed to you mixing and matching and trying to yeah. push things along. Yeah, I agree. Yes. Do yep. you when you sit down to write? Do you have a? Is it a? Uh, you know, do you have a routine? Do you? Is it a cup of tea in the morning and then you sort of go? <laughs> oh, I'm going to do a thousand words, or is it? I'll just write for an hour, or you know, what? Is there an actual routine involved? Yeah, I get up and wash my face and then do yoga. 
um, and literally because it, it wakes me up. So I've got we've got an attic uh, in the house uh, that's where my partner and I both work, and it's nice and light and big and carpeted. And so I do some yoga stretching and stuff, and I'm literally then awake and ready with a cup of tea, and off I go. So I try to be at my desk writing by six, um, and uh, be, only because I, I I don't write at night very well. I um, I can do it, and I have done it, but mornings are, are way better for my brain. And then if I'm at the beginning of a project, so my focus and my concentration isn't as good yet, um, I do the Pomodoro method. Do you know that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I just literally sit down, time it, so that for this stretch of time, I'm not allowed to do anything else other than write. And then when that time's up, I can grab a cup of tea again or go to the bathroom or or whatever. Um, I try also not to do any, not to look at the internet at all until midday because then you can't fall down that rabbit hole (laughs) of... Well, just quickly respond to my friends who asked me to a party this weekend and then that becomes a whole chat about a whole other world and then half an hour later you get back to your writing. So um, there, so I'm much sort of uh, more strict with myself early days into a project and then as the project, as I get into it, I find I don't have to do that stuff. I, I just do it by, by natural excitement for the, for the book. And with your Pomodoro, do you do 30-minute bursts or do you do an hour or how do you, how do you split so the time it, up? Yeah, again, early days when I'm just starting, it'll be more like a half an hour yeah. and then uh, it'll be more like 40 minutes and then an hour and then often I get to the point where I, I don't need it. I'll, yeah. I'll just I forget to even turn the timer on. And are you so. only ever working on one project at a time or are you someone who flits between different projects and or has lots of different – like what do you – like let's imagine you're working on something right now yep. um, and you have this genius idea for some other <laughs> thing because, of course, yep. they always look so much more genius than whatever it is that you're doing. <laughs> what do you do with said genius idea? Do you <laughs> – do you follow it like the Easter egg foil, or do you do you not? That is that is so true. Often I just think, oh, this piece, this thing I'm working on is a piece of garbage, but I've got this other brilliant idea. And so what I do, I make time and I'll I'll bang it out in whatever way, uh, uh, you know, in a, in, a, in a book or a, or if I'm at the computer, I'll literally bang out a document, save it, um, put it on the desktop to remind myself later. Oh, that's that, that genius idea I had earlier, um, and then going on on the. The, the less genius idea yeah. that needs work. Yeah. Okay. And then you can come back to the genius idea later. Yeah, that's um, right. And how long does it take you to write a book? I, I'm really slow. I'm – I more and more as as I write, I, I'm actually putting – more attention into the synopses and to the research and getting prepared for it because then I find the story writes itself a little more easily whereas once upon a time I'd have a meager kind of synopsis and you know character ideas and breakdowns and stuff um, and then get into it. I, I, I do actually write a chapter breakdown as well and I think that's from my TV days, from my TV drama days where you did scene breakdowns um, and I even if it's just a line, chapter one, you know, Xavier breaks into a house, meets the kids of Grimston. Chapter two, they take him on a t- – what do you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I just – and one, it keeps me on track. It's like a little metronome. And two, it makes sure that I have those beats in a novel where you're building up to, you know, either the, whatever language people use for it, but the first turning point, second turning point, my three acts are there, my, you know, the, everything – to make sure everything is headed towards the climax – Right, and that I haven't put an extraneous scene in, and even even for the novel that just came out, um, 
the um, the most marvelous spelling bee. Um, there was a chapter in there that I loved because it had such a beautiful moment between India Wimple and her grandma. And even early days, my editor said, "Not too sure about." this chapter and kind of how it flows and I said oh I'll rework it don't worry and so every single draft you know hopefully the novel was getting a bit better and I would rework that chapter until in the final workings of this book I thought you know what needs to happen to that chapter (laughs) yeah it needs to go it just needs to get cut and I was keeping it because of that lovely moment for the character but it wasn't it was actually getting in the way of the story it wasn't doing that lovely thing of being there for a reason and I needed it to lead me to my climax. And so by grandma, I mean, I didn't get rid of grandma, but I certainly got rid of that scene. And that just takes, it takes time, but also it's that killing your darlings thing, isn't it? Getting these lovely moments that you know are lovely, but the book doesn't need it. But it does take you, as you say, you know, you, you hang on to them for draft after draft <laughs> after draft, trying to continue, trying to kid yourself into the fact that it's really, it's going to work. It's going to be great. Yeah. Don't worry. It's going to yeah. work. And then you eventually come to the point where you go, you know what? I just yep. have to, it's got to die. Got to go. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> it's true. Oh, well. And oh. then it's tighter. You, as soon as, very often when I do this, I've done it even with characters, very often the second after I do it, I think, Oh yeah, that works much better. <laughs> do you um? Do you always know exactly because you've written for a couple of different age groups? Do you know exactly which age group you're writing for before you begin? Like, do you plan that, or is it something that sort of unfolds a bit as you start to write? I think unfolds a bit, yeah. And um, I like I mainly sort of write for eight to twelve, but it feels like my books kind of skew more like they might just go seven to eleven, or they might go more like. 8 to 13, mm. you know, so they sort of roughly hang in that main group, but but they are different. A, a book that then involves a seven-year-old is different to a book that is kind of hedging up towards a 13-year-old, of course. And do you have a do you have a word count in your mind before you begin? Like are you aiming for a certain, you know, are you aiming at the 40 to 45 or the 50 to 55? Like do you have an idea of how, you know, kind of complex this is going to be before you start? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And um, the Spelling Bee books, though, were commissioned to be 30. Mm. Um, they, they are more because I do get carried away. Um, and so that that's what I needed to deliver or at least have as a ballpark. Um, for some reason, all my other novels are 46,000 words. 46, precisely. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> it's like, you know, I'll get to the end of a novel, I'll get to the end of, you know, 10 drafts or whatever and think, yeah, I think I'm done. Word count. 46. I don't know why. I don't know if it's in my head. I'm anyway, that's roughly free. And that's the kind of writer I am. You get in 46, unless you definitely want 30, then I'll give you 30. (laughs) You can have whatever you want. Um, (laughs) When you're, um, when you're thinking up your next idea, do you, do you have any sense of having to follow on from what you've already done? So not because you've, you've written 25 books. So I'm not talking about necessarily sequels, which we will get to in a minute, but Mm -hmm. as in the idea of children looking for a Deborah Abella book, like, have you got, is that a thing? It is. I, Because what I really, of course, just truly want to do and what I truly want to advise authors to is write with your heart out in front, right? Go with that idea that you dream about, you wake up, you think about with the characters who won't leave you alone. But it is, you know, it's after a while, kids do recognize you as, you know, a particular author with a particular kind of book. And and even though my books might look sort of different, uh, they're 
for me, they're all about kids trying to, you know, make their mark and facing these kind of impossible tasks and having to kind of stand up and realising they actually can stand up. And um, But I, that is a consideration. Who who What do I pitch next as Deborah Bella? Mm. Um, and, and so – and I guess that's why sometimes authors, of course, change names if they're bringing out a vastly different book. Mm. Um, and and I get that. I, I really understand why authors do that. But that it is absolutely a consideration what Deborah Bella book is going to be next, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it becomes part of I mean, you know, whichever way you look at it, you at some point become a brand, don't you, in the sense of people sure. are looking at the bookshelf and it's like, oh, well, I have an idea of what to expect from Deborah. So, you know, that's what we'll go so. for, Yeah. Yeah, um, and when we don't have a marketing brain, especially, it's also a tough one. Um, but but I get it. I get when people pick up one of my books, and if they've read books before, I kind of get, oh, because I do it. If I pick up an author who I've loved, and then I pick up their latest book, I'm kind of looking for that same lovely feeling, even though even if it's a totally different story. I want to be in their, their good authorial hands again. Mm, very true. Well, speaking of good authorial hands, the stupendously spectacular. Did you like my segue there? Are you proud? <laughs> that was a nice segue. Oh, Professional. I'll give me a go. Um, the stupendously spectacular spelling bee has been stupendously successful here in Australia and, of course, is now off to the US, which is very exciting. Did you have a sequel in mind the whole time or is that something that's developed as the book has been so well received? Oh, no idea there was going to be a sequel. And, um, I mean, The Spelling Bee is about a very shy, reluctant, anxiety-riddled kind of kid whose whole country town and beautiful family encourage it into a spelling bee. At the end, we find out who wins. The end. (laughs) (laughs) That's it, right? That's it. And so I I remember I I work at a school uh, one day a week in the library. And, in fact, I I, – so I'm not a full-time author, of course, because I always forget about that little job, but I've been doing it ever since I left 10 just to still be with kids and still be, you know, in a library with books and stuff. And um, I was there one day and these two little girls, uh, Mia and Emma, came up to me and said, oh, we've just read this stupendously spectacular spelling bee. It's great. What's going to happen in the next one? And I just looked at them and said, oh, there's not going to be a next one. We know who won. That's the end of the story. What what could I possibly write about in a sequel? And they looked at me like I was the least smart adult they'd ever met in their life. And said, um, the international competition. Of course. What were you I know. Thinking? That's what I, I know. I thought of, and I said to them, oh, my gosh, that's genius. Um, what do you think could happen? And then they literally went away and came back with an A4 piece of paper. They'd really thought about it, this and this and the characters they could meet and the, the, the skullduggery that could happen. And I said, you know what, I'm going to take this to my publisher and see what she says. And luckily um, uh, Zoe Walton from uh, Random really loved it and, and um, signed it up. So it was thanks to Emma and Mia and, and, you know, because I'm not very smart, obviously, and they are. So that's how it came about. And you know, and even though there wasn't supposed to be a sequel, I i mean, you know, anyone who writes, you fall in love with your characters and this is a particularly loving, lovable, gorgeous, quirky family and it was so nice to hang out with them again. I miss them. I realised when I when I was then, you know, the Random House said yes and it was signed up, I realised, oh, goody, I get to hang out with these people again. So it was really fun but, yeah, no, it's only here because of Emma and Mia. 
That's hilarious. So thanks to Emma and Mia and their fabulous plotting, what can we actually expect from India this time? Like, I mean, because you've done a huge cat, there was a huge character growth within that first book. You know, yeah. what do you, where do you go from from that point? You know, in the sense of because, of course, it is a cat. You know. It's a, yeah. as most books are, it's a character driven story. And so, you know, she's had a huge amount of growth and now she has to, what, grow again? Like, what do you do with her? Exactly. That was the thing because she literally went from being so horribly, terribly anxious in the first book. And that, that actually did come about with my work over with kids over the years. And I've noticed anxiety creeping into so many kids' lives. And I thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this because I've seen really capable, beautiful, amazing kids be kind of swamped by this nervousness and anxiety. And so I thought, I, that is one thing I do want to put in this book. Um, but by the end, she actually does learn to kind of go – Actually, India, she's got this voice inside her head who's that's always really negative and terrible. And at the end, it kind of shuts up and goes away because she kind of does literally stand up. So what happens in a sequel? And so the mechanics are there. They get invited. The top three spellers from around the world get invited to the international competition in London, um, which meant that I could take my top three characters from the book, spelling bee um, contestants from the book uh, to London, which was fun. But then it had to be about something else. And mm -hmm. so in this one, the, there is a mystery. Mm -hmm. There is, you know, the spelling bee goes ahead. There are new characters to meet um, with their own trials and tribulations. There, There's some bullying that happens uh, with some other contestants. And with one of them, it's with other kids. With one of them, it's with a parent mm. um, that, that goes on. And um, so there's, there's other different, I hope, interesting character um, arcs going on there too. But what brings them all together is there is this skullduggery afoot um, and uh, these series of accidents happen at the bee and in the end the bee gets cancelled because it just it's considered too dangerous to go on. But the kids smell a rat. So it's up to them to then dis discover What's why on? are these – yeah. So you broaden the story basically. You take it from a very personal growth story into a much larger, broader platform basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And whereas the first one's kind of about India – really needing to trust herself because her whole entire gorgeous country town trusts her and she just has to find it within herself. This is more about this group of kids needing to come together and, and work on this kind of as a team. And and for some of these kids, uh, one kid in particular who's been bullied, he doesn't have friends, you know, in his home and his um, country where he's from. And so this is another moment for him to kind of shine in a way he doesn't normally in his own world. And so, yeah, they all have to come together and do it as a group. Hmm. Okay. It's just interesting to see because it, it's it's one of those situations where, you know, when you haven't necessarily got that in your head right from the start and you're uh -huh. faced with that issue of what do you do with this with this thing, it's it's um it's interesting. And as you say, broadening it out gives you so much more scope of what to do and where to go next, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so you're very, very active in the children's literature community, even winning the Morris Saxby Award for services to children's literature do you feel that the job of a children's author is not just to write stories but to get out there and foster that love of reading definitely Mm. Uh, and 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 some, for some people it does suit them, and so you know people need to play to their strengths and and do what makes them happy. Um, absolutely, and I I think um, and because of uh, you know some of my books are you know kind of a bit adventurous and daring do, and um, I particularly enjoy um, standing in front of um, either mixed audiences or boy audiences and and saying, yeah, I'm a girl, but you know here's my really exciting story that hopefully you'll like because there's swashbuckling and sword fighting and you know whatever I 
genuinely believe that kids love stories, um, but we know that there's a reluctant readers out there. We know that there are kids out there with not one book in their home. Um, so when they're at school, particularly in primary school, I think it's all of our jobs uh, for those of us who kind of either write for kids or parents, aunts, uncles, whatever, to try and get them while they're young to have a love of, of books. Because I think it's there. They just either haven't found the right book yet or they think books are daggy because they haven't, you know, again, found the right book yet. So I adore it. I I just, I love it. Whenever um, like I've had moments, well, any author who's been to a school has had moments where you've thought, well, this is going to be tough. And um, there was one time, for example, I was in um, Alice Springs and about to you know, launch into a session and I had this little boy enter the room, walk up the middle of the aisle. He was the only one in the room at that point. Um, and he stood right in front of me and said, hi, my name's Jason. I'm always in trouble and I hate books. And then, <laughs> awesome. Great. <laughs> nice to meet you, Jason. <laughs> then he sat down right in front of me yeah. and I thought, and all I could think of, I tried so hard not to laugh because it was so honest. It was so honest. Um, but I thought, all I thought at that second was I've got an hour and in that hour my sole job is I'm going to make you maybe at least consider perhaps the possibility that stories might be fun and you might borrow a book from your library one day. And um, and, and I, that every time I walk into a room I think that's my job. I need to walk in like I've never told these stories before. Um, um, and, I've I, you know, I've had teachers say, wow, you get so passionate about it. And I just think, well, what's not to get passionate about? This is, you know, we've got these kids kind of future in our hands. And I think some it is as big as that. If we if we create passionate readers, um, we are setting them on such a good path to whatever they choose to do later. You're, you're actually really well known for your excellent presentations. Like it's something that you know you obviously you do a lot and you do really really well. How do you prepare for them? Like are you, do you just have the same thing that you roll out every single place you go? Do you have a selection of different workshops that you do? Like what what kinds of things? Like what's the key to doing a great presentation I um so it depends on the school I think you have to keep it a bit fresh too to keep for yourself Mm. I think for preservation as well Mm. so um and I I know authors who've said you know I got halfway through a presentation and realized I was bored and and very often at that point in their career they take a break Mm. from presenting and they come back and I think that's a good thing I think it's good for them and and probably for their kids as well but I so I always prepare um and like, uh, you know, any teaching you do, I, so I've done a lot of workshops, of course. I have a whole bunch of things now I can do that you gather over the years. You trial stuff. If it works, you keep it. If it doesn't work, you, you throw it away. Um, so there – and I, there's – and I think as you, as you do it a bit more to you get – your confidence builds that even if, I, if I'm in the middle of something, that even if it worked yesterday but today is totally bombing – I'm, I'm confident enough now that I can kind of quickly wrap it up and then we'll, and move on to something else. Um, and I always overplan because that's important just in case, well, one, they might get through what you want to do with them quite quickly. But two, yeah, it may not work for this group. You may be doing something that they're, they're not quite enjoying enough. So the, the, the key to a good presentation is I think enjoy the kids. Mm. A, a couple of things, prepare. Really prepare, know your audience, do all that lovely checking first of how many kids am I going to talk to, uh, chat with the teachers or the librarian so that they're getting, you know, you're giving them what they hope they, they're going to get. Um, so do all that preparation, even to the point of where, where can I park, uh, 
Will I have AV? If it's a big hall, can I have a microphone? Because by the end of the day, my voice is going to be, you know, cactus. Um, so do all that logistical planning. Do I need to bring lunch? You know, <laughs> where's the best way to enter the school? Because you know how sometimes there'll be five different entrances for the school but you can't go in that because it's for the parents and whatever so do all that practical stuff but um prepare then what you're going to talk about and even though I have done it for a while I always have a point from somewhere nearby so I'll have a book with I'm going to start with this and then tell that story then I'm going to show this av whatever um and I, I may never look at it but it's almost like just feels like a little security blanket so that if I do have a blank because I'm tired or whatever, I can just sneakily look at it um, uh, and, and enjoy the kids. I can't stress that enough. They're, if you walk in and you're smiling, um, often while they're coming in, I'll chat to them and say, Wow, great glasses! Because I have a, I very often have glasses envy, um, or or I overhear them say something and say, "Yeah, I watched that movie too. Wasn't it great?" So, so you become a human being and a real person before you know that the, the session even starts. Um, I do things too, like I listen out for you know teachers if they say things like, "Jack, if you." play up during this session, blah, 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 and they tell Jack off. And then at the first chance I get, I try and get a Jack, Jack <laughs> say something nice somewhere. to Jack. <laughs> I try to say, um, Jack, I bet you'd have a great idea for that, wouldn't you? So I try if, if, as soon as I can to try and build Jack up because Jack's just been kind of torn down mm. and I haven't even been able to say anything yet. So Jack's probably sitting there going, stupid or decision, why am I even here? And I just think, okay, as quickly as I can, I, I'm going to try and see if I can, can j- get Jack, you know, to think, oh, no, this actually might be okay. So I think that my big tips, mix it up if you can. Um, I mean, having said that, I've sat in sessions where authors have just spoken for an hour and I've been transfixed. So if you can do that, brilliant. I think the younger the audience, that's tougher to mm, do. Yeah. Um, I think with high school audiences, you can do it, and I think that is fine. I've seen – oh, my gosh, I've seen – so many YA authors and, and literally there's been a mic and them and a story for the whole time and it's been genius. But for me, because I mainly do uh, – I do kind of kindergarten through to six. I mainly do primary school. Um, the little ones I get, the moving, I get – it's very interactive. But the sort of year three to year six, I'll mix it up, tell a story, ask questions, um, show a video, have a PowerPoint. I would, I'll try as much as I can to kind of mix it up. Mm, okay. So do you think that face-to-face works best for children's authors when it comes to, you know, building that platform, getting the word out about their books? Like, do you do any other sorts of promotion as well? Um, I, I do. So, yeah, the odd festival um, and PD sessions. I really love doing professional development sessions with teacher librarians mm. um, and because I find um, – a lot of teachers, of course, aren't authors, um, even though you do meet aspiring authors. Um, and so they're at a bit of a loss of, you know, I, I mean, some teachers, I've met teachers who don't read. So, <laughs> and then they have to teach kids to write. So I love going in. I've got this 20-page um, handout that I've kind of built up over the years and I just give it away. And so I'll go to PD sessions, talk them through activities that I've done and I invite them you know, please mix this up, use a different uh, stimulus, uh, whatever works for you and your kids. But if you're passionate about this, if you if you base this sort of activity on your favourite book that you're reading now or your favourite book as a kid, then hopefully that passion will kind of rub off. So I love doing those kind of sessions as well. Mm, okay. All right. So we're going to finish up today with um, our final, final, final question, which of course <laughs> is always our final, final question, the infamous <laughs> Can you please give us your three top tips for authors? Yeah, 
Um, I mean, there are, of course, there are a lot of tips, but the, the first one is really is to put your heart in front. Go with that idea you love. Um, of course, what you love may not be what a publisher thinks they can sell, what the sales departments think will sell in bulk, uh, but I think it's really, really important to be to be led by your heart. I've seen, I think I've seen too many authors along the way um, do both things. Like do, I'm going to write this book because these are really selling right now and it doesn't work because their heart's not with them. But I've seen other authors go, you know what? I don't know if this will sell, but I really desperately want to write this story. And in some cases it's been their most successful work. And I think because the reader can literally almost hear their beating heart as they, as they turn the pages. Um, so that would be my number one. Um, read as much as you can. I mean, I, I don't think these are unique, these tips, but I think they're tried and true. And read as many kids' books as you can. I've I've met kids' authors who don't read kids' books. And um, some have said I don't read it because I don't want to copy and um, even sort of accidentally and subconsciously copy, and I get that. Um, or they don't read in their genre. They largely write a particular genre, so they never read that. Um, but I'm, I just – I. I'm obsessed and I love it and I, I, I can't wait to read the next kid's book and see what did they do and how did they do it and you know, how are they so brilliant and, um, and, and just write as much as you can, fiddle and play and play. That's the thing too. I, one um, author I met a little while ago, they were commissioned, they handed in this book and, you know, there was a back and forth going on with editorial and then the, the, the publisher finally said, you know what is missing? I, I can't feel the joy in this. And she said that would actually be my ultimate editorial comment. And the, the author knew exactly what they were talking about because they were kind of going, I have to get this right and why isn't it getting right? And she realized she'd put so much kind of pressure on her. She actually, she'd forgotten <laughs> to be joyful about this thing. And yes, there's pressure. We know it. There's pressure. Will this book even sell? And if it doesn't sell, will I sign up anything else I ever do? Because, well, that didn't sell as well as, you know, the other books from other authors. But you've got to push that away, push, push insecurity away, push that voice in your head that says, this is rubbish. Why would anyone read this? And, you know, try as much as you can to block all of that out and just have a good time with your characters and remember the reason <laughs> that you got excited about this idea that it may have appeared as a genius idea one day while you're in a project, <laughs> like, you know, go back to that initial, you know, gasping kind of wonderment at this idea and, and try and stick to that as, you know, as hard as it is some days, try and always kind of find it. Fantastic. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time today, Deborah. It's been a wonderful chat. I um, really, really appreciate it. And, um, of course, the most marvellous spelling bee mystery is out now for uh, middle grade readers of Australia. And the stupendously spectacular spelling bee is out now for the middle grade readers of, in the US, which is very exciting. And uh, <laughs> we hope that India, you know, takes over the world. <laughs> funny well you know she's not as shy anymore i don't think well dominations in her uh, in her remit but uh thank you so much allison it's been really really fun this podcast is brought to you by the australian writers center a world leader in writing courses if you'd like to write fiction for kids and teens our five-week online course how to write for children and young adults will help you get there faster Find your voice, create characters, dialogue and plots to fit your age group and write compelling stories that young readers will love, 
all in a couple of hours a week. You'll also enjoy the convenience of learning from anywhere and get your very own tutor providing personal feedback on your writing. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash children's author. Cool, Deb Abela. Okay, so in terms of talking in schools, what do you think is the most challenging thing about it? Uh, I just think it's difficult to know. Well, you can't control everything. It's one of those situations where you go in, the best thing you can do is be prepared yourself because Mm. you need to be really, really confident that you know what you're doing, that you know what you're talking about, that you've got your slides all worked out or whatever. But you have to then be prepared for the fact that the tech might not work, that the, the the, the group of kids that you're talking to might be Friday afternoon and they've all had mm. I don't know, red frogs for lunch. Um, <laughs> you know, you just, you, you're just not quite sure. And there's, you're dealing with a lot of personalities. Sometimes you go in there and you'll have, you know, there's teachers that are most teachers and I will say most 90%, very, very engaged and they're right there with yeah. you and, and all that sort of stuff. But every once in a while you'll get one that's on the phone at the back of the room um, while the class, really? you know, and it's kind of like over to you. Yeah. As I said, extremely rarely. Um, mm. But you basically, it's a, uh, you know, then it's over to you. And if you, um, particularly when you're first starting out, a lot of children's authors actually come to it from teaching. So they have that teaching background and they have that classroom management stuff. But if you don't have that, that can be really confronting. Like what can you say? What can't you say? How do you manage a group? sort of, of, of kids, um, you know, most of them are on their best behaviour, but I've been to some pretty rough schools sometimes and it's really like if they get you on the back foot, then you're gone. So you have to kind of like, I have to pull out my mean mum voice sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Not mean, but just that really like, do you really want to do that? Like that's the conversation I'll have. Is that really what you want to do right now? And they look at right. you like, no, I don't think I do. And I'm like, no, you don't. And on we go. But like, yeah, it's it's kind of like if you let it go too far. And of course, the other thing is too, like particularly if you have an interactive um, kind of talk, like a couple of my talks are very interactive and they get so excited, you know, and it's brilliant because you've, got, you've then got all these kids with all these ideas, but then you've got to be able to go, right, that's it. And then we're going to move on to the next bit of our thing now. And that takes a bit of practice as well is just to get them back in their boxes to yeah. move on to the next part of the presentation. Um, and the other thing that I found about it, but too, particularly when I first started out, is, is it's really tiring. It's so tiring. You just don't even – Oh. you just can't even understand how exhausting it, it can be because you're essentially putting on a performance. So it's a yes. performance. You're managing your audience. You're trying to convey all this information. You're trying to, you know, keep – keep sort of track of where you're up to and what you're doing and stuff like that. Um, and it's, and you need like, you know, the best school talks. And this is where Deborah Bella is so great at them. The energy level you need to, even if you're, you know, you don't have to be a stand-up comedian and you don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be like cartwheeling across the stage or anything, but you've got to keep that energy level up in your voice and in your face and your enthusiasm. And, um, that is exhausting, particularly when you've done, you know, if you do three or four back to back in a day, um, you know, you, you can get to the point by the end of the day where you just don't even know what your own name is and then you've got to drive home. <laughs> and it's just like, you know, you know, it's like I'm just going to have to go and sit here for a minute and think about this before yes. I get the car. Yeah, it's exhausting. I mean, I think anyone who does performance will because you do yeah. gear up, you really yes. gear up. There's a lot of, you know, there's nerves involved and you gear up and then you like out it all comes and then you repeat that three or four times 
And then you realize you get to the end of the day. And the other thing too is that after time, you got to remember, like I remember when I first started out sort of doing this stuff, people who had much more experience than me saying, keep music bars in your bag, have an apple, <laughs> sure you've got something with you. Because sure. you don't always get time to sit, like you might be signing books at lunchtime or you don't always get time yeah. to sit down and actually have lunch. People don't necessarily even remember that you need lunch or a drink of water or whatever. So you really, yeah. like I take my own water, I take snacks. I'm, you know, you just sort of turn up with your enormous handbag full of. Yeah, sure. It's like taking yourself. It's like when I was, when the boys were babies and you had to pretty much take the entire house in your handbag. <laughs> it's kind of a little bit like that, except you're doing it yourself. And what's the most rewarding thing about it? Oh, just how, you know, how keen the kids are for the most part, you know. Oh, yeah, for the most part, particularly if you, you know, if you're doing your job, if you're in there and you, um, because that's what you're there for, you're kind of there to get them excited about reading and about writing. And, um, and so, you know, they, they, and they, and for the most part, they are excited because you bring a different perspective to it. Writers will authors will always bring a different perspective yes. to the whole thing than what they're learning in class, you know, like you kind of build on what they know, but you're also bringing a, a, a different perspective. And of course, authors are so enthusiastic. It's like Deb said in the interview, you know, part of the job is to get kids excited about mm-hmm. reading. And so authors are incredibly enthusiastic about that. Like we're all mad, like you don't really become an author unless you're a reader. Like it's it's sort of mm-hmm. when you're, if you're a reader as a kid, it just sort of seems to stem that that's where, you know, um, so most authors that I know were, were those kids that that read everything, you know, and you can spot those kids in the audience as well. You can see yourself looking back at you just going, wow, I could do mm-hmm. that. Um, and then there's always the kids sitting at the back with their eyes, you know, if they're rolling their eyes with their arms folded <laughs> and the whole, your whole, you know, challenge, if you choose to accept it is to get that kid to get involved. So it's, yeah, it's a, um, it's, it can be challenging, but it's really, mm. really rewarding. You know, and it's when that kid comes up to you at the end and asks you, that kid, the folded arms kid, yeah. if that kid comes up and asks you to sign the bookmark, then you, then you, won, you won, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's and, a very, very rewarding thing. And if it's that exhausting when you get home and you're completely stuffed, do you have a ritual or something or do you like reach for a, a Pinot Grigio or something? <laughs> what do you do? Like I can come home and I cook dinner and then I, <laughs> and then I do all of my usual things and then I sit down with, with my dog and put my feet up and just go, well, I'm not moving again till tomorrow, you know, like yeah. it's, yeah, it's what you do. But it's just, sure. it's part of the job and I think that's the other thing yeah, to, sure. you kind of have to accept as, as part of it. You, I mean, you don't have to do school talks as a children's author. You don't, there's no rule that says you must do this, um, but it is an incredibly rewarding part of it and it does, it is a fantastic way to get, even if you go in and you do a, a a writing workshop that's very very straight whatever um and the only mention of your books is you know this is Alison Tate the author of the Mapmaker Chronicles and the Ataban Cipher it is a great way to, it's still a great way to sell books because those 30 kids or whatever associate you and your message and your teaching with that book and then mm. you know they'll go to the library or whatever and, and get it out so it's um yeah it, it it is a it is a good way to get your message out there but it's just also a great way to get kids reading you know having yeah. someone passionate as passionate about books as authors are talking to kids about reading is one of the best ways to get them to actually pick up a book I think awesome awesome makes such a difference hmm. all right wonderful so we're almost at the end of this week's episode Al what are you doing in the coming week 
Uh, what am I doing? I just, you know, more admin, really. I think at this stage of proceedings is what I'm doing. And, um, well, uh, yeah, I'm um, stuff. <laughs> yes. Fair enough. Stuff. Very, I love it. very important stuff. The <laughs> very important stuff. Um, what about you? What are you doing this week? Catching up because I was under the weather last week. Oh my God, my inbox is nuts. Uh, there's so many things on the to do list that need crossing mm. off, catching up, and I'm hoping to get back on top of it. This is, sounds like the story of our lives, though. <laughs> yeah, it kind of is, really. Yeah. All right. We well, <laughs> where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Altait, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Valerie, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, do connect with both of us in the podcast group. It's free to join. Just go to Facebook and search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community, and it'd be great to have you in there. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.